Hello and welcome to the Lugos Journey Podcast. Today I brought in a guest where I'm sure you might have actually seen some of his work. His name is Dana Olson and he has written multiple stories. Uh, George and the Jungle, which was produced by Disney. Uh, the Burbs, which was uh, starred by Carrie Fisher and Tom Hanks. And also the Nickelodeon show that aired for over five years called Kid Danger. Me and my friend Brian sat down and talked to him for about an hour to ask him about what it was like actually making it into the industry and what it's like writing about hero's journey stories. First, we asked him a question because we started right in the middle. I asked him a question about what it was like writing about the hero's journey, and I wanted to get his take. So let's get started. Cool. Yeah, um, I do tend to write uh, those types of stories over and over again because the model is so strong and so ingrained in our culture that uh, it's an easy one as a comedy writer to put a comedic spin on every so. Um, everybody kind of knows what's supposed to happen. So you can get a lot of ironic comedy out of that. Like a good oh. example would be um, George of the jungle that I wrote would be a perfect example because he's a hero. He's a hero and he goes on a journey, but I mean, he's also very inept and <laughs> good hearted, but inept. And as a comedy writer, that's the kind of character that I respond to and a storyteller that's the kind of story that i respond to too is the hero's story over and over again yeah exactly right especially with um i know you didn't direct this but forrest gump right you worked on uh, the burbs and in forrest gump with tom hanks right it was the same thing you know he's like the traditional hero but he also doesn't really know what he's doing so so then right. he just kind of you know he, he stumbles upon his journey as a hero but he's not really you know your traditional hero Correct. I mean, he he's more like a witness, that, but he's got a huge heart. And yeah. his huge heart uh, impacts, you know, the journey that he goes on and the history that results from it. Yeah. So actually, you wrote you wrote the story, uh, right? You wrote the movie called The Burbs, right? So that was with um, Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher. Yes. Right? That was a great movie, by the way. I thought that was pretty incredible. Thanks. But, but so... What actually inspired you to write the movie? Like, were you the one who, was, who came up with all the ideas and wrote the whole movie? Yeah, you know, it, it started life as a television pilot for a half-hour television series at CBS in the early, early 80s. And the original title was The Sheriff of Maple Street. And the premise of that show was to be that the Tom Hanks character was the, uh, the block captain of his neighbor, neighborhood watch group, you know, so they would keep an eye out for, you know, vandals or burglars or whatever else neighborhood block captains keep an eye out for. Um, and uh, it ended up not, not getting set up or, or shot as a pilot. So I expanded it into a feature film script. And so, the, you know, the premise was basically a guy who's uh, in a suburban neighborhood and sees things that he finds suspicious and unusual that yeah. lead to a series of comedic complications. So it's just basically, I, I think why people responded to it was everybody has neighbors who, who they think are weird or who yeah. they think their behavior is weird. So that's kind of a universal point of reference that everybody can, you know, yeah, sort really of um, relate to. So that was really the, the simplest, uh, the, the idea in its simplest form is what are those goofy neighbors up to now? I also yeah. thought it was, I thought it was super ironic because at the end, right? So they end up burning the neighbor's house down and it turns out that the weird neighbors were 
the the actual main characters it was tom hanks and carrie fisher right like they were the ones who ended up burning their house down because they were being so stalkerish because they're like what is going on with our neighbors right and um that's exactly right and that's really where the story ends but because we had um Tom Hanks going up against some bad guys. If the story ended there, um, it leaves Tom sort of um, ambiguous as a hero. You know what I mean? It's like they're blaming themselves for what happened, and that's not particularly heroic. So the studio was like, well, it has to turn out that he was right about the neighbors. Otherwise, (laughs) Otherwise, he's not a hero. So then we had to sort of tack on the second ending where... They take him for a ride in the car and the trunk pops open and we find out that maybe they really were up to no good. So it sort of ends twice. The original ending was meant to end on the beat that you just articulated, but yeah. the studio insisted on something more traditionally heroic. So that's why if you watch the movie, it ends about two or three times. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. So what do you think, actually, why does the studio itself, why are they so interested in, like, keeping this framework, right, this hero's archetype framework? Because they don't want to do anything that's going to cost them any audience enthusiasm. They don't, you know, with a mainstream comedy back in those days, and the Burbs came out in 89, um, uh, they didn't want their comedies to be particularly challenging and leave the audiences scratching their heads. I mean, I think the bigger the idea and the easier it is to grasp the idea and deliver on the idea, so to speak, if that's not too oblique. No, no, that makes sense. Better. Yeah. There was this thing, there was this concept called, it was called high concept back in those days. And they always liked their movies, the big studios anyway, liked their movies to be, what they termed high concept, which is an idea that you can repeat to your friend in three sentences or less. So Mm -hmm. like, for example, you guys know E.T., right? The movie E.T.? Yeah, of course. So, you know, it's basically Lassie come home with a spaceman instead of a dog, you know? It's about about a magical visitor, you know? And uh, so so that would be a high concept, something that's easy for the audience to grasp. I'm not sure they go down that road much anymore. I mean, I don't know. I, I, the movie business has changed so incredibly much to such a degree and with streaming and everything, I'm not exactly sure yeah. what they're thinking anymore. But, well, so but the hero's the journey, you know, endures. Yeah, well, that's, that's the important part. So you worked with uh, Tom Hanks and the Burbs, right? And Actually, first of all, what was it like working with Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher, right? Did it feel like it was super incredible or? Both of them the greatest. You know, Tom was, uh, had just shot up into the stratosphere when we were making the Burbs because the movie Big got released that summer and made him a, you know, he was already a star, but Big made him a, a superstar. And, uh, and, a, a class act. I, I liked him tremendously. Very respectful, very inventive, hugely talented. Can't say enough about him. Everything that you would think Tom Hanks would be, he is. And Carrie Fisher liked her tremendously. Liked her tremendously. And I thought she did a great job. And I wish I'd written more for her to do because I thought she did a really good job of that. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So it came out in 89. 
I'm not sure the timeline of Star Wars, right? So was she already part of oh, Star yeah. Wars? Star, the first Star Wars came out in 77. So she had been Princess Leia 12 years before we did the Burbs in, in the first movie. Um, so what was she in like the, the first three, which would be what? The, the, the second three in the trilogy? I don't know. I lose track. Star Wars, know. The Empire Strikes Back, and then uh, Revenge of the... Return what, of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi, yeah. Nice. Um, so yeah, no, she was already Princess Leia. Oh, that's that's cool. So uh, so when you met them, they didn't really have like you know that that ego to them. They were sort of you know big stars, but they're also really you know they had a company. yeah. Not Tom and Carrie. They were both great. Have you ever had to deal with any actor or anyone who was kind of like uh, had a big ego or was kind of above everyone else? Have you ever had to deal with that kind of? Yeah, sure. I mean, but. Um, you know, not to a degree that it was terribly off-putting. I mean, they all sort of, sort of have an ego to a certain degree. Uh, I've heard stories of people that were sort of, you know, an ass, you know, but, uh, but not really any of the ones that, that I worked with. They were, they were all pretty cool. Um, but they're, that's definitely out there and something that you have to deal with. I mean, you know, you hear stories of like, stars or, or, or actresses not coming out of their dressing room because blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And that's, that's always been part of it, you know, just going to deal with it. So actually, so I think it's really cool how you're talking about, you know, you made a lot of movies in the, the 80s and the 90s, right? And that was, those were very popular. And now it's, you've reached this sort of new school where you actually started a superhero series with a bunch of kids, right? So like Henry, Henry Danger. Danger. Yeah, exactly. Right. So do you feel that, you know, now that we've transitioned from, like, the traditional hero of, like, Indiana Jones and, like, you know, the heroes that go back all the way to, like, you know, Homer and, and uh, Hercules and all those people, do you believe that the superhero genre that we have today is the same basic frame, framework, especially with Henry Danger? Or do you think um, that it's a little different? I mean, in the sense that they're... Um, uh, superhuman heroes to a degree that go do battle with superhero villain superhuman uh villains yes mm. um, um with henry danger i just wanted to tell that story and and uh present that character the superhero um through his assistant's point of view you know so yeah. originally it was like oh gee i wonder who take Superman's cape to the dry cleaners, you know, when it needs to be, you know, who's the kid that sweeps up in the back cave after Batman and Robin go home and go to sleep. So that's, so that was my comedic take on, on the hero's journey that time. You know yeah. I mean? And I mean, it's awesome because he actually, he's not the main hero, I guess, even though he's the main hero of the story, he's the protagonist, but at the same time, he goes through his own hero's journey, right? Like, especially like you know the process of like meeting the mentor well the mentor is the the main hero so right so it's really cool watching that dynamic from the person on the side right and you know because nickelodeon is a kids network and i was trying to sell it as a kid's show i thought it would be interesting to tell it from a kid's perspective so then i just you know invented henry as like the the assistant and, wait uh, so you have to sell all the television shows that you write to different networks. Is that correct? No, um, you have to, um, well, you have to attempt to sell them to as many buyers as possible so that you can find a, get, you know, get a sale. 
So it's, it's like, it's like sales. So, you know, I come up with an idea and then, you know, I don't have X amount of dollars that it's going to take to produce this and get it out on the network. So I have to take my idea and, and sell it to somebody uh, like a Nickelodeon or, a, you know, what ABC productions or whatever it is. Um, oh, that's it's kind of and, fascinating, actually. I never really yeah. thought of that job as relating to sales, but can you kind of just talk through a little bit of how you ended up where you are now? I know that you went to Northwestern and you talked about taking a creative writing class. And I'm also kind of like just looking, I don't really know what I want to do. I do love comedy. I think it's super cool. I like writing. I'm into like copy right now, but I'm curious like how you found, you know, this industry and how you grew to get so involved in it. So when I was at Northwestern, I was, uh, I acted in and directed uh, uh, the Improvisational Comedy Review, which at Northwestern is called The Meow Show. And, uh, um, and this was in the late 70s when Saturday Night Live was sort of new. I mean, they had, you know, the original cast was still in place when I was an undergrad. So it was very exciting. And um, certainly the, uh, the, the comedy world, that type of comedy and those types of performers really exploded that period. So it was a good time to be doing improv at Northwestern. And, and um, we had a visiting professor there uh, one year named Gary Marshall, who produced tons of television shows, among them Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy and The Odd Couple. And, oh, wow. Um, and uh, he came back to do a visiting professorship and we did an evening of scenes from the Meow Show for him and I got to know him. And he ended up hiring me uh, and putting me on the writing staff of one of his hit shows. It was called Laverne and Shirley. That was a top-rated show on ABC, the ABC network, through the late 70s and the early 80s. So that was my first job. I got a staff writer job on a major network television show right out of college. Like, literally, wow. I graduated on Saturday, and on Monday, I had an office in Hollywood on a hit TV show. So that, that's that doesn't happen to most people, you know? That's the, you know, that's the, uh, we, we just talked to someone yesterday and he also got his job through a professor. So like, it just kind of yeah. goes to show how important it is to have good relationship with your, with your teachers and stuff. Yeah, it's true. How'd you, how'd you end up meeting him? I mean, how'd I end up meeting, meeting him, Gary? Yeah. He came and saw the, the meow show and, and he was on campus for like a week doing classes and, you know, lectures and working, doing workshops with, student actors and student writers. And I got to know him and I let him know that I wanted to be a writer and I intended to move to LA and, you know, wanted to be a writer. And uh, he said, well, yeah, look me up when you get there. And in the meantime, I, I wrote a couple of scripts on my own, like as audition pieces, what they call spec scripts and uh, sent them to him. And uh, he liked one of them enough to end up offering me a job right at the end of my senior year of college. So, so that's how I got to know him. So what was that job like? Um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I learned a lot. I, you know, I was a professional comedy writer at 22, you know, salaried and got my name on, 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 tel on television and, um, you know, joined the Writers Guild. And, and I went to work every day and worked with a bunch of, you know, professional comedy writers churning out a weekly television show. So, you know, there's a learning curve and it's really, really hard grueling work you can imagine i mean in those days i think we did 30 episodes a year maybe 30 half hours so yeah. it takes a week to stage and shoot one of those and who knows how many weeks to 
to write a script, you got to come up with 30 of them. I mean, it's, it's a major undertaking. Um, so, uh, so I learned how to write fast and I learned how to let go of my work and let other people take over and step on it. You know, it's like, I didn't, you learn, you develop a, a cold heart towards your material. Cause you know, it's always going to get rewritten and you know, Oh, um, speaking of being a comedy writer, like, what do you think are some important lessons that you learned specifically, A, from writing comedy and also just from writing in general? Like, what, yeah, like writing techniques, maybe uh, any authors that you picked up that you like particularly admire? Um, I would say, you know, they, there used to be an old rule, don't write like you talk. And when I was doing, um, when I was taking English classes as an undergrad, I'm trying to remember, I had a, a modern American authors, I think, professor who commented that I wrote my papers like I talked. And I, I have a feeling that he qualified the old adage that you shouldn't do that. I'm trying to think if he told me, no, it's okay, you're developing a voice. But I think, you know, it's important to develop a voice and it's important for what you put on the page to be as entertaining as possible, certainly in what I do, right? So, yeah. so you know, um, uh, it's important to be engaging and, and your job as a writer is to induce your reader to turn the page and keep reading, you know, and, yeah. and not be bored and thrown away. So you have to kind of learn how to do that. And um, uh, so it's technique and it's, uh, you know, it's honing your storytelling chops and knowing, um, you know, how to create uh, an interesting character that you can have a vested interest in and a rooting interest in, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But I mean, for the most part, it's like creating a, finding your own voice, I would say. And it, and it takes a while. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of practice, like anything else. You know? so, so what was exactly the reason why they said, don't write like you talk? Is there a reason behind it or was it just sort of like the way? I don't know. I guess, I guess in the old days, they used to think that um, writing had to use more formal uh, language or, you know, and, and, and don't yeah. go for easy idioms and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're not teaching that anymore, but, but it's, it's wrong anyways, because you should write like you talk. I mean, if, if you're a good communicator, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a poet, you know, I'm just like, I'm writing entertainment, you know, for the masses. So, um, so yeah. So I write like I talk for the most do you, part. Do you, do you have like any large writing influences that you admire? Anyone that you kind of looked up to or any like oh, particularly sure. influential writing books that you picked up? Like what's your education like in, in writing? Um, well, I'll tell you, as a comedy writer, I used to, I don't know, do you guys know Mad Magazine? You oh, know, I, yes, uh, definitely. Okay. So Mad Magazine was like huge in the 60s when I was a kid and in the 70s. And every issue would have a six-page comic parody of a popular movie that was in the theaters. And they would do a lampoon of that movie um, or a television show. And that's kind of how I learned to write, um, I guess you would call it parody. It's probably not quite, doesn't quite rise to the level of satire. Um, although Mad was a brilliant satire magazine. Anyway, so that's kind of how I learned to write um, by 
by being imitative and writing, you know, comedy, comedic sketches based on um, uh, uh, stories that were in the zeitgeist or popular movies or whatever. Um, and uh, now I got sidetracked. What, what was the question? Oh, <laughs> no, it was just about like your writing education, like how you, oh, yeah, so yeah. you learn to write by reading. Is that right? I learned to write by reading. Um, uh, I had a love of the movies from an early age. I went to a ton of movies. I, I studied film in college. And so we read, uh, well, certainly, you know, now um, the Hero's Journey book, and I forget the author. Um, uh, Joseph Campbell? Well, no, there's another book called The Hero's Journey that's based on the whole Joseph Campbell thing that a... Um, that a lady wrote in her name escapes me now. I probably have it on the shelf somewhere. Um, a guy named Sid Field who wrote How to Write a Screenplay. That's an excellent. Oh, I've heard of that book. It's very famous. Yeah. I think in the in the writing. Community. Yeah, Sid's Sid's real good. Um, you know, with teaching you how to recognize and implement structure, and so he's real good. Ray Bradbury wrote a really good book called Zen in the Art of Writing that I liked a lot. That's a really mm -hmm. good That sounds one. really interesting, actually. Ray Bradbury was the guy who wrote Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and Bradbury was a writing machine for years and years and years. That's a really good book. Um, and then, you know, there's certain, certain novelists that I find write pretty cinematically. Um, I used to I used to read a lot of uh, popular adventure novelists like, like Michael Crichton. You know, Michael Crichton wrote The Andromeda yeah. Strain years ago, and he wrote the original Jurassic Park novel. Oh, really? Wow. The first movie was based on. He was a Harvard doctor and became a <laughs> novelist. He wrote a he wrote a very famous best-selling novel while he was in medical school at Harvard, and then I think he chucked being a doctor for being a novelist. Um, and wrote a you know a series of best-selling books. I liked Crichton a lot. I like um, Elmore Leonard a lot, who's a crime writer and, and has an excellent, very spare voice. His books are extremely readable. Another one in sort of a similar vein is Donald Westlake. I like Donald Westlake a lot. These are all sort of you know popular genre novel authors. Not yeah. you know, it's not literary fiction. It's entertainment. You know. Yeah. Those guys did are you, really good. Did you find that when you were, you know, when you were younger and even now that you had to dedicate almost your entire life to it, right? Like most of your life was spent doing things that you love, like watching movies, reading books and constantly educating yourself. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, it's not an easy way to make a living, but it's always, it's always been fun. You know, I've mm -hmm. always enjoyed and, and loved what I do. And now it's going on 40 years I've been doing this. And, and, I, and I still enjoy it, um, it's a, but it's a difficult way to make a living. And the industry has changed dramatically, you know, since I, when I started, there were only three buyers, you know, out there that, would, that were buying television series and uh, um, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and that was it. Now there's like, you know. Netflix. Yeah. Somebody, I think somebody told me two, two years ago, my friend Drew said he, he knew for a fact that there were like something like, 650 television series in production or something across all the platforms all over the world. I mean, that's pretty incredible, which on the one hand, 
is an incredible opportunity to think that there are that many buyers out there producing television. But then on the other hand, it's like, God, how do you find an audience, you know, yeah. and all that? Well, what well, forces dictate, you know, what shows get watched by the most people, you know? Yeah, well, that's the interesting part of it, right? So what you're really talking about is something called Pareto's distribution. I'm not sure if you ever heard of it. Called what? Pareto's distribution. I don't think I have. No, what's that? 80-20 rule. 80-20 rule, yeah. So essentially, essentially what it is, is out of all of the people who actually do or start something, only like a, a very, very small percent of it get most of the output. output. So for example, right, out of... Um, I think it was a stat that 3% of the YouTube videos received 90% of all the views. Oh, 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 oh okay. Right. And it's, just, it's the same thing with, with almost all types of art. Right. So I bet you like the top, like Ariana Grande and Justin Bieber are getting so much percentage of all the views as compared to the other 99%. And it's also probably the same with, with uh, making TV shows and movies. It's, you know, only very few of the movies and the people that actually start doing it make get all of the views and all the people who are interested in it. And, and who knows what the factors are ultimately that create those conditions, you know? I mean, some of it's just luck, some of it's, you know, who knows what. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's why uh, you always have to throw a lot of things at the wall. It's like, you know, when, when one project stops, you start another one. And, yeah. and I think, you know, I've probably written, I don't know, upwards of 60 feature length screenplays over the years. Um, many of which came to naught, many of which I wrote on spec, meaning I wrote, you know, um, without having a deal. It's just, I, you know, and I tried to sell it after I finished it. Some of them were assignments for the studio um, hired me to uh, execute a story that they generated internally or adapted a book that they bought or something like that. But I mean, I've always had multiple projects going at once because, you know, you never know what's going to stick to the wall. You never know what's going to be the one. Wow. So even, even within uh, your TV show, for example, right? So you do a lot of work with Henry Danger, right? Mm-hmm. So within Henry Danger, did you find that in each individual episode you were doing testing to see like what kind of works and what kind of doesn't and what we should do to keep going? Well, yes, uh, as, a, as a rule, but Henry Danger was, was um, run through Dan Schneider's production company. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dan, you know, created, speaking of Ariana Grande, Sam and Cat and I, Carly, and uh, uh, Drake and Josh, and had this huge, yeah. yeah, huge long run at Nickelodeon. So, um, so he had a real um, good idea and strong ideas about what wor- what types of things worked for Nickelodeon and Nickelodeon shows. So Henry Danger happened to be a you know a kid show that was able to you know conform to those. Uh, ideas that he, you know, was real strong on selling at Nickelodeon. Um, but, but yes, during, during the first year of any show, uh, any new show, you're trying to figure out what works best for the characters, what types of stories work the best. That's like a continuing, um, uh, evolving sort of arc until you reach the point, you, you've heard the term jumping the shark. 
Do you know what that term is? No. Jumping the shark means your show has reached a point where all, pretty much all of the episodes that are possible to extract from this concept have been done. And now you're just either repeating yourself or doing things so ridiculous that don't even necessarily relate to the original concept of the show. And it comes from a show called Happy Days. Do you guys know Happy Days? I've heard of it. But not so Ron Howard, the director, that was his big hit television show in the 80s. Also a Gary Marshall show. And uh, it was a nostalgic comedy set in the 1950s in Milwaukee. And it was a huge hit. And the character who was the breakout character was this leather jacketed motorcycle riding 50s kind of Marlon Brando wannabe named Fonzie. And he became the, the breakout star of the show. So as his character developed, all he had to do was walk onto the stage and the studio audience would go crazy. So it was all about, you know, Fonzie. And then one year, I think it was season five or six, they had an episode where Fonzie was going to jump his motorcycle over a tank filled with sharks. And that was the point at which everybody said, what are they doing in Happy Days now? And ever since then, the jumping the shark has been the term that means that show is now officially out of good ideas. <laughs> so, so yeah. That's incredible. That's really funny. So did you find that when you were actually working with, um, with Dan Schneider, did you find that he was one of your mentors and that you learned a lot from him? Um, uh, I wouldn't describe him as one of my mentors, actually. Um, he was an old, old friend. Uh, we both acted in a film together. It was his first job ever in show business. Oh, really? And, um, and then we reconnected on Henry Danger. Uh, I think I learned a lot about the culture and landscape of Nickelodeon watching him uh, after he enjoyed a huge... 20 year run of I think he I, I think there was not a single season between Henry Danger and one of the sketch shows that he did back in the late 90s that he didn't have a show on Nickelodeon primetime for like 20 wow. years it was an incredible run so that much I so I did learn watching that but I wouldn't describe him as a mentor <laughs> No. So who were your mentors? Who did you find were, you know, absolutely just incredibly inspirational and taught you essentially most of what you know? Gary Marshall was certainly my, my first big mentor. I mean, he put me on the map. You know, he without Gary, you know, I'd be, you know, selling used vacuum cleaner parts somewhere or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, uh, Gary, um, and then trying to think. Uh, there's a gentleman here in Chicago, Bernie Solins, who... Uh, uh, was one of the uh, creators and, and uh, original directors of Second City. You guys know Second City, right? Yeah. Bernie was one of the guys who created Second City back in the late 50s. He was, he was somewhat of a mentor. Um, I, you know, other guys that I certainly emulated, I mean, that didn't mentor me and that I didn't know them personally or study under them, but I mean, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, Carl Reiner, you know, yeah. Steve Martin, certainly, all guys that I uh, really respected and admired and, and wanted to be more like, you know. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really incredible. Uh, what do you think 
are the most important lessons that you learned throughout your career? Maybe just about like moving up, uh, just for the rest of us who are maybe like, who haven't really had a real job or anything like that yet. Is there anything that you can share with us that you think is um, something that- Well, if, if you're lucky enough to be able to find something that you enjoy doing, that it's possible to make a living at, I would say go at it while you're still young and keep at it. I mean, it's, it's really hard. You hear no a million times, more times than you, you know, than you want to certainly, and certainly more times than you hear yes. But you just have to keep at it and, and stick to it. And, and because the more you do, the more opportunities you'll create for yourself. I mean, if you just like, like in my case, you know, if I had just written one screenplay and nothing happened and then I quit, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, but if you just stay in the box and keep taking your cuts, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it could, you know, usually a career as a writer or in show business, certainly it goes like this, you know, you have years where you're really hot and then you have years where nothing is happening. So that's, it's something to get used to. It's not like I have ever collected a regular paycheck, you know, bi-weekly ever in my life, except for while I was on Henry Danger. But I mean, other than that, it's like, you know, I'm, I've been an independent contractor and I've lived from, you know, job to job. So there's a lot of, um, there's, there's no security. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of downtime. So, um, you just, but you just have to stick at it. And, and I really like what I do. I would do it if I wasn't getting, you know, paid for it. Uh, which is most of the time anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Well do, you, well, do you find that there were some times in your entire process where either you made a huge mistake or, you know, just things weren't really going your way and you were just like, you know what, I'm actually considering giving up and it's just so hard that I might want to go back to that secure lifestyle of the biweekly paychecks and things of that sort. No, <laughs> because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to do anything else. So, I've, no, I've never really thought about that. Um, you know, I mean, I'm getting older now and um, probably not going to sell another television show and probably don't have enough energy to work on one if I did. So I'm changing now. I wanna, I'm, I'm writing a book now. Um, and uh, awesome. um, What's it called? Uh, it's, oh. there's, there's no working title yet, but it's, hopefully it's funny. And, it, oh, and, it's funny and it's an adventure. It's kind of a hero's adventure, as a matter of fact. Um, so, uh, but, um, but no, I, I never, I never thought that I was, I, I never considered quitting and doing something else. Uh, do, do you think that in your life, actually, so throughout your entire career, you've had a long 40 year career. Do you think that you have been on your own hero's journey? Do you think that, you know, the framework of the hero has sort of fit into your own life and you could sort of come back to it and be like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm at that point of reaching the ordinary world and I've finally made it through. Um, you know, I don't know. I suppose we could maybe some, some, some less exciting version of that. It's been a journey, no doubt. Um, I don't know. Do I feel heroic? I mean, I mean, I, I guess if, if you're thinking in terms of I was able to, I mean, I was able to scratch out a living in a very difficult industry. Um, yeah. you know, I don't know how heroic that is, but, but there are, you know, it's, it's hard. And there are a few people really in the, in the fabric of life that, 
that choose to do that and, and, and do that. So it's definitely, I guess, the road less taken. Um, so it's different. I'm, I'm happy. I'm proud. I'm proud of what I've accomplished. I don't know how heroic I feel it is, but I'm, but I'm proud of what I've done. You know? Interesting. No, it's cool because, you know, every hero, it seems like they have this, you know, framework of they, they, they push themselves towards a goal and they're continuously pushing themselves towards, you know, either in one hero's journey, they're pushing themselves towards one goal and then they start another hero's journey where they keep going through and pushing towards a goal and a goal. And it seems like that's kind of what's, you know, writing is like and bouncing from TV show to TV show to movie to movie. And it seems like you're constantly working on projects as an independent contractor that keeps pursuing you in like these different hero's journeys. That's sort of what I get out of it. Um, yeah, I guess so. Uh, I guess what you're always seeking when you, when you undertake a, a new writing project is um, attention and, and success. My cat just jumped up on the desk. Um, uh, attention and, and, and success and to be read and, and, and liked. And um, uh, although the, uh, the, the low points are, are many, what keeps you getting out of bed every morning is the fact that, oh, today could be the day, could be the day that I have the idea that changes my life, you know? Where do you so, think those moments were for you? Like, what do you think the most impactful moments in your life were? And did you feel like it was true in the moment or did you only kind of realize it after it passed? Well, the first one was when I got the job right before I graduated on the TV show. I definitely, I definitely recognized that one in the moment for sure. It's like, oh my God, I got a job. It's unbelievable. Um, so many of my friends, you know, were actors and, and composers and singers and, and, and writers who struggled for years to get a toehold. And some of them didn't and fell out and did, you know, what, what you were just talking about a minute ago, just, you know, decided up. I'm going to go, you know, sell air conditioning or something, uh, into pursuing the artistic thing. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but so, so that was definitely a moment. There was a moment when I sold the script for George of the Jungle. Um, I had written that on spec and uh, I wrote that script in four weeks and I gave it to my agent and, they, and he turned around and, and sold it to the Walt Disney Company and it became a big hit movie. That was a big moment. Um, when Henry Danger went on the air, that was a big moment. So yeah, I could pick out like those are those are those were three moments that I thought were. Also, uh, I I had a moment when I, I acted in this film um, back in the '80s called Making the Grade, and I had a very prominent speaking role that I never I never pursued acting after that. Um, but that was kind of a moment too. So yeah, I could pick out half a dozen, I guess. Yeah. Wow, that's really awesome. How, how did you write an entire screenplay in four weeks? Um, I had a real strong uh, uh, template or model. I wanted to write a comedy Tarzan movie. And uh, the original title of the script came from when, I, when I, was, I was wrestling around with my son at the time, who would probably been about three at the time, and I was calling him Gorilla Boy. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. That's a funny title. And so I go, what would Gorilla Boy be about? Well, it would be a Tarzan parody about a man raised by apes in the jungle who, you know, finds a girlfriend. I always love Tarzan movies for whatever reason. So 
again, going back to like a Mad Magazine style parody, which is what I, how I first learned by doing, I, I wrote a, a, a Tarzan parody in, in four weeks, turned it around very quickly, and then ended up selling it to Disney because they had, they had bought the rights to the old TV show, George of the Jungle, and were, were looking for a script. So, I mean, that's kind of fascinating because just yesterday we were talking kind of about how it's possible to learn from everyone. Yeah. And to think that one of the most impactful moments in, in Dana's career was something that came out of a moment with his son. Yeah, like it just, from a three-year-old. Yeah, right. it just kind of goes to show, like, as long as you're always, like, looking for, you know, as long as you're, you're as long as you're so passionate about something that you're always kind of, it's always like, because I noticed, like, he's playing with his son and still on the back of his mind is his screenplay. And yeah. So, like, that's a level of passion, I think, that you kind of need. Yeah. Which was, it's inspiring, really, to think about, like, in every single moment, as long as you're constantly kind of, if, it, if it's in your head, you can make something out of it. Yeah. Like, that's kind of incredible for it to come out of that kind of moment. Yeah, and you know, you know something, Brian, uh, my entire career, I felt like when I've been engaged in a project, anytime I'm not actively thinking about it, I'm not doing my job. You know what I mean? So if I'm like, you know, if I blow off a Sunday sitting in the sun by the pool or whatever it is, you know, it's like, oh man, I should be, you know, I should be in front of a pad taking notes or writing some dialogue or something. I feel like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not solving that big story issue that's going to get me past the hump on this on this project yeah i feel like i'm i'm cheating myself almost so that's been i had to learn how to give myself that break you know over the years it's like it's okay you can take sunday off it's okay you know but but still be on the lookout for those moments that you were talking about like when i was playing with my son yeah that's so interesting because you know i have um I'm not going to name names, but I know a lot of adults that really don't like their jobs. And the problem, their problem actually, is that they can't turn it off, right? They're constantly thinking about their job and the weekend comes, but it's not really the weekend because right. the brain's still going. It's still trying to think of things. But if you're not happy at your job, then you don't want your brain to keep turning. You, you want to turn it off, right? right? But for you, because you actually love your job and you're so passionate about it, it's like, oh, that's really awesome. You know, you just keep thinking about ideas. And you're excited about those ideas. Yeah, that's that's kind of a cool part of my job. Yeah. He like works twenty four seven basically. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, that's how creative work is. Yeah, I think like it's interesting because I've met a lot of like business successful people in my life, but like it's kind of hard to find successful artists. And you know, it, it's especially up where I live, like in the North Shore, like you could find a lot of lawyers and doctors, but it was just so fascinating to find somebody who kind of approached from a different angle, you know what I mean? And I do think that it kind of takes a different mentality to be a successful artist. Yeah. So I feel like there's a lot to learn from like people who find success in art, um, even though business in its own form is traveling hard. But I just think it's really cool. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it, it is mostly, you know, doctors and lawyers and financial advisors and other types of professionals around here. Um, but, um, you know, all of my oldest friends from like college are artists in one form or another, you know, writers or television producers or, um, you know, actors, um, and some of whom have, you know, gone on slightly different routes. I, I have friends that are still performing, but who also, for instance, teach 
high school dramatics or whatever, you know, keep a hand in, pay some bills, but I mean, also stay flexible enough to be able to do what you love. Because if you're doing it for that long, then at some point, you know what I mean? I think it just becomes a resilience thing. Yeah. No, and I and I think like when you're talking about writing your scripts and not knowing whether or not the like whether or not they'll succeed, you know, it's like not a guarantee that the ability, the mindset to be able to get through that is something that's definitely learned. Yeah. Right? You gotta be stubborn. Like stubborn I guess is a negative connotation to it, but like you do. You have to be stubborn and persistent sort of like go together. You're right. It's that's that's absolutely accurate. It's it's stubborn and and persistent, um, and uh, you know you gotta you get, you gotta walk the walk. I mean, I've uh, always had a workspace um, of one in one form or another. I, I rented an office outside of the house for years, but even when I didn't, like way way back when I was first starting out, um, you know, I would get up in the morning and and sit down and and no screwing around, man. I try to write something every day and uh, and when I was done with one screenplay I started another one you know I mean there's I, I, I've met a lot of writing students over the years in screenplay seminars and whatever that that write one screenplay and hold on to it really really tightly you know and and are never able to put that one down and start something new that's one thing television taught me it's like okay that episode's done on to the new episode you know, yeah. and, and so that's got to do with persistence. And well, I, actually, so there was this, um, there was a study that was done by a professor. I forget which book I read it, but it doesn't matter. There was a professor who essentially had two, um, it was a photography class, and he had two, essentially did an A-B test where he took one group and he gave them one assignment and another group where he gave them another assignment in the class. And the class was for one group they had to do throughout the entire semester. All you have to do is take one good picture and I'm going to judge based off the quality of your picture. And if it's a great picture, then you get an A or if it's a decent picture, you get a B and it keeps going down. Now for the other group, you have to take a hundred decent pictures, a hundred decent pictures. And all you have to do is make them decent quality and they have to be a, um, and they have to be 100, right? There has to be 100 of them. And he waited till the end of the semester. He received the submissions. And guess which one he found was the best quality pictures? It was actually the 100 ones. Yes. Very interesting. Yeah. Interesting. It was so awesome because it's like, you know, they're the ones who are constantly testing and failing and testing and failing and going through and keep pushing on and they keep finding new pictures and they're finding new inspirations, and they're not really focusing on being perfect on that one thing, but they're, they're embracing their failures and they keep going. And you're giving yourself a greater chance to succeed. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you're taking, you know, 90 more shots than the other yeah. guys. And that's, and that's key. That's a, really, that's a really cool analogy. That's, that's really cool. That's, that's key. You gotta exactly. take a lot of shots and, and be able to, you know, put your ego aside and go, okay, that one's done. You either like it, you don't like it, whatever. I've moved on to the next one, you know? Yeah. Do you think we were born with that? Like, do you think you were born or did you think you learned it? Like your kind of stubbornness and your ability? I think probably a combination. I think you're probably, it's, it's something that I I feel like I've, I acquired 
you know, I've been able to, I mean, I have a, I have a creative ego, but I'm able to, you know, overcome it for business, you yeah. know, if I have to. Um, so I don't know. That's a good question. You're probably born with some of it, but it's, it's definitely a lesson to be learned, you know? So. Yeah. Well, if you if you were to ask for the psychological answer, psychologically, they've looked at every single trait and man, I think, I think that was atomic habits. But in the book, they essentially said that they're asking, yeah, it was Atomic Habits. They're saying, okay, were, are you born with it or were you not born with it? And the answer to it was they've looked at every single trait ever and found that there's a large biological component in it. So now when they ask, oh, is there a new, like, is this trait, are you born with it? They stop testing it essentially because they're saying, oh, yeah, you know, you're probably born with it. Really? Yeah. Well, and then, you know, so then the next question is, you know, what is it about your genetic code, right? I mean, you know, it's interesting. My, uh, my maternal grandfather published two novels in his lifetime. Interesting. And, uh, what were they so about? One was about, uh, one he published in 1930, almost 100 years ago. And it was about uh, working in the iron mines in northern Minnesota, which he did when he was a kid to put himself through college. And... Uh, he wrote that one, and then the, the other one he didn't publish until 40. He, he published two novels 40 years apart. Wow. And the last one he published was about his childhood uh, growing up in Florida at the turn of the last century. Um, wow. So, And he was also a very talented artist. He, he really, really good with uh, 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 drawing. And, uh, and my dad painted. Both of my sisters were painters. So I guess, you know, there's definitely creative genes that run in the family, but nobody ever did it for a living except me, you know, so. Uh, yeah, well, I think, so there's an actual, um, so have you ever heard of Jordan Peterson? He's very like new. Yeah, sure. I know Jordan Peterson. Yeah. So Jordan Peterson, he has a philosophy of the movie Pinocchio, right? So in Pinocchio, essentially what happens is, and I know that was a big part of the verbs, right? Like they had a character called Pinocchio. And in Pinocchio, essentially Pinocchio has to go and save his father from the belly of the whale, right? And he, sees, he said, it was like, I was thinking, I'm like, what does that mean? I'm not sure what it means to save your father from the belly of the whale. But what he really found was that there's a strong genetic component in it, right? So essentially what you're doing is you're, you as a child, as the child of your father, you are trying to unlock the genetic potential or, yeah, the genetic potential that your father has not realized, right? So you're essentially saving the genetics that have come down in the belly of the whale and pulling them out and manifesting them yourself. And that's part of the hero's journey. Part of the hero's journey is if your father did not do something, if you were, you know, if your tribe did not do something, it is your journey to fulfill their hero's journey and to go and do the things that your father didn't do. That's very interesting. Um... And that's a good place to, to, to come back to. I've actually got to jump on a phone call in about another 10 minutes, but is there something, is there anything else that you guys definitely want to ask me before I Anything? I think, I think those are, uh... yeah. I mean, just to summarize super quickly, uh, just to kind of retouch on like the most important things that you kind of gathered out of your, you know, story career, you know, just like for the rest of us to kind of like, if you could tell, you know, if you could tell every single aspiring writer 
you know, one or two things, like what would it be? I know one of them is going to be to be stubborn and be resilient. Yeah. That's for sure. You got anything else for us? Don't be afraid to be imitative when you're starting out um, because it's part of the learning curve, you know? I mean, some guys are fortunate enough to be completely original um, right out of the box. Do you guys ever read any Neil Stevenson? You know who Neil Stevenson is? No, no, but I will. He's written a lot of this. um, uh, It's almost like steampunk, but not quite. And uh, he wrote a couple of really funny books right after he finished undergrad. One of them was called Zodiac. Uh, then he wrote a book called Snow Crash, which really kind of put him on the map as, uh, you know, one of the new, um, uh, you wouldn't even call it science fiction, but, but anyways, um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, don't be afraid to imitate. Yes, don't be afraid to be imitative. Because that's a, that's a part of finding your voice. So I started out, the first couple of things I did were movie parodies. The, the, uh, the first movie that I got a lot of action on that actually got made was a, a parody of uh, slasher movies, and it was called The Lawnmower Killer. And I remember this. Back and, and it was um, bought by an independent company, and they made it for very little money, and nobody saw it. But it was, you know, a direct rip. It was like the Scary Movie franchise, you know? It was like a a forerunner of the Scary Movie stories. Then the second thing that I wrote um, uh, was a parody of Godzilla movies, and it was called It Ate Cleveland. And uh, (laughs) and I I set that up with National Lampoon, and they were uh, going to make that into a movie, but that that never happened. Um, And... um, it's very useful to to follow models like that because it teaches you structure and it teaches you uh, character and it you know teaches you how to set up and pay off a joke and uh, and it's all about being imitative you know yeah. and then you know once you once you hone your skills and you know um, you get better and better and you you find your voice over time yeah thank you for that yeah thank you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, we we really appreciate you. Like this is a very very great conversation. Fantastic. Oh, Thank cool. you so much. My pleasure. That was really fun. You guys asked really good questions. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, do uh, do send me a link to one of your podcasts so I can check it out. Okay. Yeah. You want to send them a copy of your book? I wouldn't mind sending you a copy of my book. Your of interested. your book. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You got my email. Perfect. No, I really appreciate you coming on. All right. Thank you so much. Good luck. Have a good year. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.